Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Hi, everyone. This is Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, the host of the Parlay podcast. I am here with Avital Winner for episode three of season three. Hi, Avital. Hello. So Avital Winner is a speech and language pathologist, as well as the acting profession leader of speech language pathology and audiology at the Ottawa Hospital. So welcome. Thank you so much. Now, uh, Avital and I know each other as our uh, role on the board of directors of the Ontario Association of Speech Language Pathologists and Audiologists. Um, but I actually contacted Avital when I saw this amazing article that was published on the CTV News website just recently, actually, February 22nd. Um, and the title was The Speech Language Pathologist Helping COVID Patients Learn How to Swallow and Speak Again. And so this is kind of something that is that is new since the beginning of this pandemic. Um, we've really seen how important the role of speech language pathologists is with patients who have been intubated or who are very ill and more recently as a result of COVID. And so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about um, maybe the content of this article and in general what our role is as speech and language pathologists with um, patients who have been have tested COVID positive? Sure. Um, so I guess I'll start with just um, the excitement that this generated by um, this article in general, just the appreciation that, that speech pathologists working in acute care um, have shown by seeing this, by having the um, the word out that this is a, an area of practice for us. Um, it's not an area that is given a lot of um, attention. So it's pretty exciting for more medically based speech language pathologists to have our work profiled. Um, so as this pandemic has played out, um, it's really sort of highlighted our role. We've kind of um, honed in on these areas of practice where we can provide a lot of assistance to these patients. Um, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, just like every other discipline, we were trying to sort out how best to serve our patients, um, how to keep our patients and ourselves safe and how to provide um, the most efficient and best practice possible while continuing to deliver care, not just to these COVID patients, but also all the rest of our patients. Um, as time has, has passed, we've um, sort of, we've learned a lot more about um, what our role is in the care of COVID patients specifically, um, right from ICU post-intubation um, throughout the continuum of care, uh, patients that are not intubated but are experiencing shorter breath and having difficulty coordinating breathing and swallowing, um, and then 
post that acute phase, um, what are the lasting negative sequelae of the COVID-19 um, infection? So impact on muscle strength, um, on swallowing, on cognition, um, and how that's treated in, in the post-acute rehab phases mm-hmm. as patients move on from acute care. Um, so I don't know where you want to start. And we can start in ICU and how that. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to. How we've been involved. Yeah, exactly. No, and I just wanted to highlight that this is not a new scope of practice for speech and language pathologists. We've always yeah. worked with patients who post intubation or, or who have uh, respiratory illnesses. Correct. But mm-hmm. like you said, the pandemic has kind of highlighted the role of speech and language pathologists. I think oftentimes um, our our role is not as well known as it should be. And so now because of the influx of patients who have been intubated because of COVID, um, it's become more evident to other health professionals and, and just a general public yeah exactly exactly so there is a, a a growing body of research that is looking at the risk of dysphagia post extubation and this was even obviously before covid um showing that there's a prevalence of about 40 to 60 percent in patients who are intubated 48 hours or longer with that risk increasing exponentially with the number of days intubated. Um, And there's a number of factors that plays into that risk. Um, It's not just the itself, although that certainly can cause laryngeal trauma, um, edema of the larynx, vocal cord paralysis, um, factors that play into that would be things like um, the size of the endotracheal tube, which is getting a little bit more attention lately, um, the number of times the patient has to be reintubated, um, of course, the, the length of time that they're intubated, but then there's other factors as well. Um, involved in post-extubation dysphagia. So once they're extubated, um, is their respiratory status stable? Are they able to coordinate breathing and swallowing? Um, what is their cognition like? What is their muscle strength like? All of those factors play into uh, whether a patient can swallow safely. So mm-hmm. because of the spotlight on, on patients who are intubated because of COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, this has highlighted our role in the ICU a little bit more um, there was actually, and this is something that I share with my students, an article published in 2002 by Langmore and her colleagues, um, which is titled, uh, let's see here, Predictors of Aspiration Pneumonia in Nursing Home Residents. But this has gotten a lot of attention over the years. And so some of the predicting factors are pretty much everything you've mentioned. So we've got um, well, suctioning was the number one. So if you have to go into the tube and, and suction the mucus and whatnot, uh, respiratory difficulties, feeding tube, if someone is really ill, if they've been in bed for a long time. And so, you know, all of these have been published in, in multiple times. And now we're seeing this as a result of COVID, like you said. Right. And, and one of those, one of the factors that um, is front and center in that article, specifically in that study, is the dependence on feeding, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if some of these patients, actually, this is something that um, was an interesting um, issue that came up uh, with a patient of mine on the COVID unit um, who was not um, intubated, um, but extremely short of breath on high flow oxygen at the time. And 
because he had such high shortness of breath and exertion. So any kind of movement exacerbated her shortness of breath, including self-feeding. So the ideal would have been to have someone participate in helping him feed, except that we were really trying to minimize contact and minimize time mm-hmm. in that space with patients in those in those conditions with high flow of oxygen with an active COVID infection. Mm-hmm. So we were really presented with sort of a conundrum of um, having him be shorter breath by feeding himself versus potentially increasing the risk at Um, the hand of being fed by someone else. So really balancing those risks. And I think that um, in effect is one of the biggest things that have um, been highlighted for many of us um, working throughout this pandemic is balancing the risks Mm -hmm. uh, is, is a huge factor in all facets of our practice. So balancing the risks of safety for our patients, safety for ourselves. Um, How can we practice when we have certain constraints um, not being able to um, conduct a, a feast, a fiber optic, fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing um, during the active infection for risk of aerosolization of the virus, um, relying on our clinical skills. So there's there's always a constant search for balance, balance and quality of life. Mm-hmm. For the listeners who may not be as familiar with uh, dysphagia or swallowing difficulties. Why is it that someone who is short of breath might have difficulties swallowing? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So let's go back to what happens during a regular swallow. Um, So we take something um, in the mouth, something to eat or drink, and your tongue and your, your cheeks and work to prepare the bolus. You chew it up, potentially your tongue moves it, gathers the bolus, moves it to the back of your mouth um, where the pharyngeal uh, phase of the swallow is eventually initiated once the bolus gets far back enough um, in the oral cavity. So once the pharyngeal swallow, the pharyngeal phase of the swallow is initiated, um, the vocal cords begin to adduct um, the pharynx constricts, the, the hyolaryngeal complex is pulled up and forward um, by the suprahyoid muscle groups, um, and the epiglottis is deflected to cover the larynx. So normally we know that that process of vocal cord adduction um, in coordination with breathing, which in effect um, that adducting period where the vocal cords are closing, we're holding our breath for that brief second. So we know that the normal um, process of respiratory swallow coordination is to exhale, close the vocal cords, hold your breath, and then exhale, complete the exhale um, before you continue on whatever else you're doing. So when someone is very short of breath, that brief breath hold period can be very effortful. It can be problematic. And it's not uncommon for that exhale, breath hold, exhale pattern to get thrown off. And we often see um, someone inhaling at the wrong moment and potentially increasing the risk of aspiration into the airway. So this is something that we also see um, in our patients who have other restrictive lung disease, uh, COPD, for example, chronic chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disease. Um, So it's something that we see in other populations as well. 
Um, and I find in, in this population, in the COVID population, it's it's uh, very amplified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, the um, one of the most common symptoms is this acute respiratory distress syndrome, right? In people who have COVID, and so <laughs> breathing uh, is pretty severely mm-hmm. impacted, of course. I was just going to say it's, and it's amazing um, how much chewing, even something that's fairly soft, um, like a banana or, you know, some diced peaches could actually cause um, a person to be short of breath, even during the mastication process, which then if you're already short of breath before you've even initiated your swallow, um, it just takes the energy out of a person and it makes it very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we it's all something that we take for granted, right? Eating, swallowing liquids, solids. Um, but when you're ill, um, mm-hmm. it, it becomes very difficult, like you said. So mm-hmm. you mentioned, um, you know, where do we start? Do we start in the ICU? So maybe walk us through a little bit of, of what happens when someone is hospitalized with regards to, to swallowing. Sure. So um, in my facility, we normally are referred um, to see a patient after extubation. So I know in some facilities, SLPs have gotten involved um, with communication before extubation. That doesn't happen um, in our facility. Um, Right now, we're actually working on implementing a screening protocol where all patients who are intubated um, would be screened um, by nursing after excavation in order to identify uh, patients who then need to be referred on to speech pathology. Um, at this time, um, you know, the, the healthcare team is just is identifying based on observations uh, mm-hmm. post excavation. So um, if there's pre-existing conditions that predispose them for dysphagia, if there's obvious signs of dysphagia or aspiration, Um, when they're starting um, liquids or solids after intubation. So we normally would be referred um, sometimes in the day after extubation, sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Um, And when that occurs, uh, the first step is to go meet with Uh, the patient after doing a thorough chart review, um, identifying all the possible risks, what, you know, what um, any, any aspects of their medical history that might um, impact on their swallowing, Um, doing a clinical evaluation, um, which has been slightly modified uh, during the pandemic, depending on the status of the patient. So um, certainly patients that are COVID positive, we've had to look at, um, how we practice in order to minimize minimize our risk of exposure. Um, so avoiding um, avoiding eliciting coughing um, as much as possible, maintaining that six feet mm-hmm. distance uh, when we don't have to be right up close to the individual. Um, Which must be a challenge in and of itself because, you know, usually we're right there in the patient's face trying to to observe as much as we can in terms of the oral cavity and um, get as much information as we can. It really is a challenge and it's hard to get used to not doing that when you've been used to practicing Mm -hmm. 
a certain way for so long. The other thing I found a challenge is actually, so when we're in a room with someone who's COVID positive and potentially in ICU, they're still on high flow oxygen, which um, then puts us in a situation where it's considered aerosol generating. Um, so typically in that condition, we, were, we would be wearing an N95. Um, we would be wearing the full gown and um, visor, eye protection, gloves. Just trying to raise your voice over to get your volume across through the N95, across the, the face shield, so that the patient can hear you um, in a room where there's all sorts of background noise with machines is a challenge in and of itself. Um, and I found um, I get short of breath just from mm-hmm. trying to keep my volume up at a level where um where I can be heard. Mm-hmm. So I'm really working hard on my diaphragmatic, di- diaphragmatic <laughs> breathing, excuse me, um, to keep my, uh, my voice healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I would have never thought of that, but yes, for sure. I would imagine yeah. it's, it's quite noisy in there. And then, uh, you know, we've all experienced that trying to communicate with a mask is, is so much more difficult. We, uh, we underestimate yeah. how much we lip read, Absolutely. So some of these patients are very delirious after excavation. Um, And so typically, if I weren't wearing a mask, you know, I would, if a patient was not able to follow my verbal commands, I would provide some visual cues, um, which is absent now, you've lost that ability. So I've developed a lot of hand signals as I'm trying to do my oral motor exam, um, you know, show me mm-hmm. <laughs> a big smile and, and using hands mm-hmm. gestures to try to get that message across. Um, it, it has been really a challenge in flexibility of thought um, in planning, you know, thinking about what is the goal of our assessment um, and how can we be flexible and modify that assessment to still find the information that we need to find to help our patients. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that about 40 to 60% of COVID patients um, who have been on a ventilator for a prolonged period of time might have um, or will have post-extubation dysphagia. And, uh, in the article that was published, um, this was about a month ago, so I went and looked at the current um, epidemiological summary put out by Government of Canada, and as of yesterday, we were looking at at least 1,600 people who have required mechanical ventilation. And so do you know, I I just kind of did a quick search, but I couldn't find it. Do you know how long are patients ventilated for on average? Because like you said earlier, the length of time um, also has an impact on on the risk of dysphagia. So do we know how long COVID patients are, are are mechanically ventilated for? I actually, I actually don't have that data. Okay. I don't the answer to that. I don't know if it's out there. <laughs> Maybe we yeah, don't have enough I mean, data yet. Um, I do think that a lot has changed since the early days in terms of management in the ICU. So mm-hmm. um, initially, I think they were trying to extubate sooner and then reintubating. Okay. And so the risk of trauma from reintubation was higher. Um, and they're more likely to, um, to perform a tracheostomy now as opposed to at the beginning just because the management is better they know um you know how to complete those types of procedures um in a safe manner okay um, 
compared to at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that certainly would be useful data. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm a bit mindful of our listeners. We have got a lot of people from the general public who are listening. We have speech and language pathologists. We have other health professionals. Can you just explain to us a little bit um, when someone is intubated, where does it go? In, and why, why would it impact um, swallowing or post-intubation or post-extubation rather? Sure. So the breathing tube is actually passed through the vocal cords. The vocal cords mark the top of the airway. They're like the gatekeeper to the airway. Um, So everything right below the vocal cords is the trachea, your breathing tube, and then that leads into the lungs. Um, So the breathing tube is passed through the vocal cords. And then with every breath, with movement, um, the vocal cords sort of brush up against the breathing tube or they rest against the breathing tube. And so the longer that tube is in place, the more irritation it can cause um, with friction along the tube. Um, As well, sometimes there's a bit of trauma as it's passed through the vocal cords, or of course, if if that has to be done multiple times, that can Mm -hmm. cause more trauma. Um, So Sometimes after after extubation, we see just a bit of swelling, but it can also cause um, a vocal cord to become weak or paralyzed. Um, That effect can take weeks. It can take months to recover. Sometimes the paralysis doesn't recover. So there's sort of a range of impact on the structure of the vocal cords and the function itself. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the vocal cords are the the gatekeepers. So if a vocal cord is paralyzed or swollen or, or weakened, then when we're swallowing, there is a higher risk of food going down the airway. Exactly, exactly. So usually that's not the only factor which determines whether someone is going to aspirate um, mm-hmm. into the airway. So Uh, The term we use for food or liquid going down the wrong way, as we say, is called aspiration. Um, Usually in someone that has this degree of weakness or trauma also has sort of generalized muscle weakness just from the critical illness that they've just, that they're they're recovering from. Um, And they may also have cognitive um, changes, which can impact um, the physiology of the swallow as well. Mm -hmm. So the timing of the swallow and how quickly um, those muscles work to protect the airway. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, we have to consider swallowing is made up of many different muscles working together. And if someone's been been bedridden for a little while, your legs will be weak, your arms will be weak. You know, all of those larger muscles are more obviously weakened. But like you said, the swallowing um, is not visible to the naked eye, but it is definitely affected by that general muscle weakness that you were describing. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then certainly, um, you know, there's, we've also seen um, that there's, some patients, some COVID patients that um, are at increased risk of stroke. Um, And so certainly if there's, um, you know, a unilateral muscle weakness associated with neurological changes, then that can impact um, the swallowing muscles as well. Okay, so you've talked about um, 
in your facility post extubation, um, those who have some symptoms are referred on to a speech and language pathologist, then you move on to the clinical assessment. And did you say that right now you are not able to conduct a uh, fiber optic endoscopic examination of the swallow or only in certain circumstances? So during the active infection phase, um, it is considered higher risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try and we have been successful in sort of avoiding that in that pe- period, that time frame, um, just to, to minimize the risk of um, infection. Mm-hmm. Um, but once that active period, so, you know, after that 14 days, um, I believe for critically ill patients, the the active infection or the active isolation period is a bit longer um, than we have been able to, once they test negative, we've been able to proceed with the feast, mm-hmm. with the endoscopic evaluation of swallowing or with a video fluoroscopic assessment of swallowing. Okay. We use both instrumental uh, procedures at our facility, okay. depending on what's more appropriate for the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Whereas in other patients, we might use the feces um, quite regularly in the ICU because um, the difference between these two studies, which both allow us a picture of um, the inside, right? When a person is swallowing, we want to know exactly what is happening, exactly where the breakdown in swallowing physiology lies so that we can help find a technique or a therapy that will um, will specifically treat the issue um, and mitigate the issue or the risk of aspiration. So in, in other patients, we will use this quite frequently because um, patients are very ill and they can't always be transferred to radiology for a video fluoroscopic swallow study. Um, but it, obviously in these COVID patients, we haven't been able to use um, either study during this period. So we're looking more at clinical indicators during our clinical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly once they've moved uh, out of ICU into the, the more medical COVID units, um, sometimes we have a bit more flexibility with these instrumental assessments. So what does this mean? for people who have swallowing difficulties due to intubation or muscle weakness or any um, symptoms related to COVID? What does it mean for them after they've moved away from ICU, perhaps on a medical floor or even, you know, once they're discharged at home? Yeah. So it's a process. It means that likely we're not going from removing the feeding tube to steak and potatoes the very next week. Um, It can take weeks or months to get a person back to where they were before in terms of being able to eat a regular meal. Um, Our goal in acute care is always to help minimize risk and maximize a person's functioning and help them help plan for a safe discharge home or wherever that discharge location might be. Um, So sometimes that means um, an individual is going home on a modified diet. So they may not be eating the same types of foods and liquids that they were before they were, they were ill. Um, And they may need follow-up afterwards to help them with therapy to regain 
um, swallowing strength um, and to continue to assess their swallowing and see when it is that they might be ready to progress to the next level um, because the risk of continuous aspiration um, can result in pulmonary complications like pneumonia, which in these patients who already presumably have had, you know, pulmonary Mm -hmm. issues, they've had lung infections, that's why they're in the hospital. They could be more more susceptible to an aspiration pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I suppose it really depends where where they live, right? If you're in a larger center, then you might have access to more services, more resources once you're discharged home. If you're in a more remote, remote, remote (laughs) community, uh, then it might be more difficult. Certainly that's a challenge. And then I think when when you talk about um, or ask what this means um, in the long term, um, this has a huge impact on a patient's quality of life. I think mm-hmm. we can all relate to eating and drinking as a social element of our lives. I can't think of a culture that doesn't have eating and drinking mm-hmm. as a part of their uh, fabric mm-hmm. and, you know, celebrations, um, celebrations of life, celebrations of death, mm-hmm. eating and drinking is always involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so to not have that ability to participate in a meal with your family and friends or to go for coffee mm-hmm. or, you know, have a drink, um, break bread, uh, that can have a huge um impact on a patient's quality of life and result in in social isolation Mm -hmm. not to mention the risk of malnutrition and hydration if we're not treating the dysphagia and looking at how to modify what a person is eating in order to enable them to get the nutrition and hydration that they require Mm -hmm. yeah like i said at the very beginning this is something that we take for granted um, and and it is part of our daily lives, of our socialization, of, of every celebration that we have. There's always food yeah. and drinks involved. So I think yeah. that if anything, um, you know, the pandemic is highlighting the the need to to question perhaps, okay, is this going to have an impact on my loved ones swallowing later down the road, depending on the facility where that person is. Um, like you said, we're, we're all learning from this pandemic yes. and the impact that it has, the, that the virus has had on people's health and well-being. And so, yeah, um, I, I think if we look to, uh, you know, you, you raise the issue of remote uh, communities. And I, I think if there are silver linings that we can we can extrapolate from this experience, we have been forced to be flexible and rethink of how rethink how we do things and in all sorts of um, disciplines we've moved to virtual Mm -hmm. provision of virtual care Um, and this is something that we did at the beginning as well in our facility when we couldn't have outpatients um, come into the hospital we did everything remotely as much as possible virtually so by zoom or by whatever online platform you know you might be using and I I hope that this is some this is one form of flexibility that we can maintain going forward in order to reach the broadest amount of people possible so people that are limited by mobility and aren't able to come into the hospital of course we can't provide the same care Mm -hmm. Um, we can't do a feast or a video thoracoscopy um, over zoom but there's a lot of things that we can do um, that can help make a patient's life better 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, this is definitely the silver lining in all of this is we've realized how much uh, video conferencing can can help at least in the initial stages and to try to figure out what's happening and okay this is the services that you need you will eventually need a fees or a video fluorescent exactly so maybe right exactly so maybe this means a first visit is by zoom and then you still need to come into the hospital but this time it's only one visit and one two-hour trip in instead of two right yeah Um, now you talked about um, cognition a few times And Mm -hmm. I think that that might surprise some of our listeners. So, you know, one, swallowing. I don't think that a lot of people realize that um, COVID may have an impact on swallowing, but how might it impact cognition? So in the initial periods, um, when patients are critically ill and they're just extubated, um, there's often a period of delirium, which doesn't necessarily clear, um, you know, it it clears over, it can clear over time, it can take uh, weeks um, for the delirium to clear. So in that initial period, um, the delirium impacts a person's cognition, their ability to follow instructions, um, their memory, their ability to interact with those around them. but there is also, because COVID is sort of, we're realizing a multi-system um, disease, it impacts not just one part of the body. Um, so there are indications that it has thromboembolytic risks, right? So there's risks of clotting, risk of stroke, um, and that can certainly impact a patient's communication and cognitive communication. So they're speaking, they're listening, reading and writing, but also um, if someone has a memory impairment um, or you know a reasoning difficulty with their reasoning, um, that's going to impact how they function, how they communicate um, with their healthcare team, with their families, potentially with their job if they're you know of working age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely um, quite devastating, really, uh, the mm-hmm. impact that this virus can have. When we were emailing, you know, prior to the recording of this episode, you talked about how management in the hospital setting has changed because of the pandemic. You've touched on that a little bit. You you know, you mentioned how um, um, the tracheostomy is now performed sooner than it was. But what what else has been impacted in terms of management? Um, It's funny because I think now everything almost doesn't seem normal, but we've gotten so used to wearing masks every day, for for example. Um, you sort of forget how things were at the beginning, but everything is different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet. Um, um, really, there's very little that's the same, right from, so, you know, everybody wearing masks. And now, um, as of, was it this week or last week, the province is now, um, the ministry has has requested a modification to patient masking as well. So now it's not just um, healthcare workers that are masking, but um, inpatients in their rooms are masking when they're within six feet of healthcare workers. Um, of course, there's exceptions to that, but mm-hmm. um, so that's a big, a big difference. Um, we're wearing eye protection all the time. We're wearing, you know, your 
whenever you're doing your seeing a patient, you're doing a point of care risk assessment to determine what are the risks for each individual patient. Do is is a procedure surgical mask is that sufficient, or do I need an N95? Um, we're not allowing visitors to come in to the same degree as we did before. Again, there's provisions to allow essential care partners um, for inpatients as well as for outpatients. Um, if you're able to, to communicate on your own, if you're able to come in to a visit on your own, you're coming in alone mm-hmm. without your, your family member with you. Even in some cases, if you're um, coming for an appointment, which is you know, often it, it's useful for us to have someone with us when we're going through a, a mm-hmm. huge life-changing diagnosis or treatment because it's hard to retain everything. So it's it's really changed how we approach our visits with our patients. Um, we may need to include family members um, through FaceTime or through Zoom mm-hmm. while we're actually having an in-person visit with a patient uh, because we can't have them all there together at the same time. So I think just the added complication of going through all of this reasoning process of how we approach each, each assessment has changed the interaction to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know of any resources out there? Are there handouts to better prepare people for this, these changes, this process? And I, I imagine most facilities might have their own. Or I don't know. I haven't looked into it. So that's why I'm, I'm just asking. Yeah, you. I do know, for example, at the Ottawa Hospital where mm-hmm. I work, there is a kind of what to expect um, on, on the web page. So you can have a look at that and sort of, get a sense of what to expect. And I mean, that's certainly something that I think most healthcare workers, I I hope are doing. I know that we are doing that Mm -hmm. when we called appointments with patients, if they haven't interacted with healthcare during this time, um, we sort of prepare them. You know, when you come into the hospital, there's screening at the door, there's people asking you questions about, um, about your symptoms, whether you have symptoms before you come in. Um, And I think too, over the last year, many people have gotten used to this screening phase. Anyone who has kids that are going to school or Mm -hmm. kids that are still engaging in sports um, or have interacted with healthcare or many other, um, you know, even going to get your hair done, you're going to be asked screening questions before you come and and being asked not to come if you're ill. Um, So I think that the general public is starting to get somewhat used to some of these new procedures. So it's Mm -hmm. not a huge surprise anymore. Right. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Well, Avital, thank you so much. I think we've kind of touched on most of the topics that we, we had planned to cover. Is there anything that we may have skipped over? Anything that comes to mind? I don't think um, so. I, I'm thinking um, the last thing that comes to mind is um, I do a lot of calls for um, for outpatients. I'm the one that that triages our outpatient swallowing referrals um, at our facility. And so when I'm contacted patients or contacting patients, um, 
there is often a an apprehension about coming in to seek care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is something I know other areas of practice are also dealing with this, but I feel that that's something that um, needs to be highlighted um, and worries me because people are delaying care um, and they need to know that it is still safe to come into the hospital. And again, when we talked at the beginning, um, talked about balance, Mm -hmm. balancing risks, um, that's something that I think we all need to do and we all need to make decisions that we're comfortable with. Um, But balancing the risk of not treating your dysphagia or not evaluating whether you're at risk um, potentially puts you at risk of other mm-hmm. complications, um, which we could, if treated sooner, um, you know, minimize the risk of you being admitted to hospital. Mm-hmm. So That's that is point. something that, mm-hmm. that I think is important to get out. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you. And, and really, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all healthcare professionals. Um, it's, it's quite amazing uh, the work that everyone does. And, and I know it is, you are balancing the risk, but the risk is still there. And so, you know, thank you to everybody working with these patients on a daily basis. Um, it has been very, very difficult. I mean, everybody has seen all of the posts on social media and then how it's really added a, an extra layer of, of strain. And um, we, I, I don't think we can thank healthcare professionals enough. So I just wanted to, to say it out there on the podcast that thank you so much. Um, and thank you, Avital. I mean, you are on holidays right now and taking some time off <laughs> your your holidays oh to, to record this podcast. And it's to so share. nice to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. And and like you said, uh, again, another silver lining of this pandemic is that it's really highlighting the work of speech and language pathologists. Um, we're a profession that is not well understood, um, mm. and and this is kind of highlighting our role when it comes to um, swallowing and also like you mentioned communication cognition etc so thank you for your time and for talking to us a little bit more about this today thank you so much all right bye take care you too may is speech and hearing month if you want more information on the role of speech and language pathologists as it pertains to swallowing or dysphagia communication, language, speech, voice, what have you, you can look at a few of our websites here in Canada. Our National Association website is sac.oac.ca and our provincial one is osla.on.ca. Here are a few bloopers. I lost my train of thought. Uh, so what was I saying? So we're just, um, I asked if they, if you can, um, I think you were just addressing that you do, you can assess them. Check out more information, the show notes, links to resources that we mentioned during this episode at theparleypodcast.com. Also, please subscribe to this show on whatever platform that you use to listen to this. It really helps out. Thanks. Bye.